Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, welcome back. I hope you're all doing well. We're currently working our way through the vascular reaction pattern, which I think can be one of the more challenging topics to learn, but also one of the more important ones to learn because our eyes and our wit as dermatologists can help to make an early diagnosis and potentially save someone's life. We've just spent three episodes covering vasculitis and vasculopathy, so today will basically be part four out of five on purpuric rashes, as we'll be covering retiform purpura today. In the next episode, we'll bring all this newfound knowledge together at the patient's bedside and discuss how to get a good H&P and how to work up and treat these patients with a purpuric rash. So what is retiform purpura exactly? Retiform purpura refers to purpura that have more of an angulated shape. They occur as a result of complete blockage of the dermal and sub-Q vessels, so these patients are typically very sick and in the hospital. However, like erythroderma, retiform purpura is not a diagnosis itself. It is a clinical sign hinting towards a variety of underlying conditions, which can be very serious for both of them. So today, we'll invite back Dr. Dude to give us a few pearls on retiform purpura. Oh, what's up, man? Welcome back. We'll have a good time today. Before we jump into our discussion of retiform purpura, you guessed it, we'll run through our vascular reaction pattern and start with our disclaimer. This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmstead Medical Center, or their affiliates. Okay, so let's start with that review of the reaction patterns from Dr. Gropper's paper. If you're anywhere new to dermatology, I think these reaction patterns are incredibly helpful for approaching rashes and lesions. So if you haven't already, definitely check out episode 3 where we describe the reaction patterns and interview Dr. Gropper himself. So, the five reaction patterns are papulosquamous, eczematous, vascular, dermal, and vesiculobullous. The vascular reaction pattern refers to red lesions produced by the cutaneous vasculature that may or may not be blanchable. We've broken these vascular disorders into eight entities or groups, which include 1. Erythema multiforme, 2. The toxic erythema group, which includes the drug, bug, and toxin subcategories, which you'll remember are 1. Drug eruptions like SJS or TEN, 2. Viral exanthems, and 3. The toxin-mediated eruptions, including scarlet fever, staph-scalded skin syndrome, toxic shock syndrome, and Kawasaki disease. The third vascular group is the figurate or gyrate erythema group, which includes erythema annularis centrifugum, erythema gyratum repens, erythema migrans, and erythema marginatum. Four, we have urticaria, five, vasculitis, six, vasculopathy, seven, retiform purpura, which we'll roll through today, and lastly, eight, the vascular growths, including neoplasms and vascular malformations that we'll discuss in the last episode of this season. Okay, great. Since we got some time to kill and some brain to chill, let's talk a little bit about what retiform purpura actually is. And to tie it all together, we need to know how they relate to levito reticularis. Give it your best shot, and don't worry, it'll come.
Rutiform purpura, which are sometimes called branching purpura, refer to purpura with an angulated shape that is due to complete blockage of the dermal and subcutaneous vasculature. And remember that purpura simply means visible hemorrhage into the skin or mucosa. So again, rediform purpura, aka branching purpura, have more of an angulated shape due to complete blockage of the dermal and subcutaneous vasculature. Rediform purpura exists on the severe end of an occlusive spectrum, with levito reticularis and levito racemosa living on the mild end of this spectrum. Levito reticularis refers to erythema in a completely connected net-like pattern, usually occurs on the extremities, and it is due to vasospasm, vascular wall inflammation, or early obstruction. Again, levito reticularis refers to erythema in a completely connected net-like pattern. It's usually on the extremities, and it is due to vasospasm, vascular wall inflammation, or early obstruction. When blood flow to the skin is reduced in a more irregular pattern due to obstruction, that's what we call levito racemosa, which looks like levito reticularis, except the erythematous rings aren't fully connected. When this occlusive process gets so severe that the skin infarcts, that's when we get ischemia and subsequent hemorrhage into the skin, resulting in rediform purpura. If you're able to do some Googling, I want you all to first Google a picture of Levito reticularis, which you'll see a reticulate lacy-like modeling. When you look at that picture of Levito reticularis, now imagine that the occlusion is so severe that one of those net-like islands becomes hemorrhagic. That is what gives you rediform purpura. It's basically like your skin is having a heart attack, except the end organ is the skin and not the heart. For rediform purpura, it's a pattern recognition thing, so look up several pictures of rediform purpura and you'll get the gist of what I'm describing. It's a bad, bad sign, and the quicker you recognize it, the better off the patient will hopefully be. So besides this classic appearance, it's also good to know that rediform purpura may also have hemorrhagic bulla or ulcers within them. There can also be a variety of colors present, from hot neon pink to dark black purple. And since rediform purpura are often caused by an occlusive process, lesions are often quite tender to the patients. And like the other purpura we've discussed, rediform purpura can occur anywhere on the body, but they tend to favor the dependent areas, such as the lower legs. Okay, so you're home on call, waxing your surfboard, or snowboard, I guess, and you get a stack consult. You go to the bedside, you see stellate rediform purpura staring you in the face. What conditions come to mind? At the very least, you should realize in that moment, you're gonna be taking a rain check on the shred session. Again, rediform purpura is a bad sign, so your brain should jump to occlusion of medium or larger vessels. Like the vasculitis and vasculopathy podcast, there is also a massive differential for rediform purpura. By now you guys know me, I've got a mnemonic for everything, so I've got yet another one for you all to use as a framework for your rediform purpura differential. For this Diffie, remember my advice, with A for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, D for drugs including heparin and coumadin, V for the many causes of vasculitis and vasculopathy, I for infections including meningococcemia, ecthyma gangrenosum caused by pseudomonas, necrotizing fasciitis from group A strep, angioinvasive fungi such as mucor or aspergillosis, disseminated strongyloidiasis, or brown recluse spider bites. And we'll repeat all those in a little while.
Then we have C for calciphylaxis or cocaine tainted with levamisole. And lastly, E for emboli, such as cholesterol or fat emboli. Whoa, whoa, slow down, Mr. Sandy. That's a lot to remember, but you're doing a great job. Hit me with it again. Again, for your rediform purpura differential, remember the word ADVICE, which stands for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, D for drugs including heparin and coumadin, V for the many causes of vasculitis or vasculopathy, I for infections which include meningococcemia, ecthyma gangrenosum caused by pseudomonas, necrotizing fasciitis from group A strep, angioinvasive fungi such as mucor or aspergillosis, disseminated strongyloidiasis, or brown recluse spider bites. Then we have C for calciphylaxis or cocaine tainted with levamisole, and lastly E for emboli such as cholesterol or fat emboli. Many textbooks will divide retiform purpura into inflammatory versus non-inflammatory retiform purpura. However, for simplicity's sake, I have lumped them all together into our larger differential using the advice mnemonic. But just remember, if you see inflammation, you will lean more towards vasculitis as a cause, which makes sense. Vasculitis, itis, which means inflammation, which means inflammatory purpura. Easy peasy. That's it. Already getting that lumper mindset and freeing your brain space. All right, so these retiform purpura are staring at you, taunting you. Now it's your turn to stare back at them. So what do you look for on exam of these patients? You could start with a pulse and no one would blame you. If you can find early lesions, you want to determine if they're inflamed or palpable. If the lesions are palpable due to edema caused by inflammation, then you are likely looking at inflammatory retiform purpura and leaning towards vasculitis as a cause. There can also be clues in the distribution of the lesions. Lesions on dependent areas of the legs and buttocks suggest immune complex vasculitides. Lesions focused symmetrically on the upper and lower distal extremities is suggestive of disseminated intravascular coagulation, aka DIC. And if lesions are focused on fatty areas of the thighs and lower abdomen, you might lean towards calciphylaxis or Coumadin necrosis as a cause. Heparin necrosis, on the other hand, tends to appear near where the heparin is administered, either at sub-Q injection sites or near the IV site. If lesions are focused on the cooler areas of the ears and the digits, you might think about cryoglobulinemia or levamisole-tainted cocaine. And if lesions of atrophy blanche are present, they may hint towards antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. And what is atrophy blanche, you might be wondering? Atrophy blanche appears as a white, angulated, scarred plaque, usually with some surrounding inflammation that are typically on the lower legs. All right. So how do you want to approach the workup for your patient? Don't get too caught up trying to know every little thing about a disease and forget to know your patient. I think someone famous said something along those lines. Before you think about workup, it's important to review the patient's chart and see the context of their hospital visit. If they're in the hospital for a heart cath, that might hit you towards cholesterol emboli. If it's an elderly patient who fell and broke their hip, you might think about fat emboli. But as for blood work for retiform purpura patients, a CBC with differential can tell us a lot. 
a CBC in a retiform purpura patient could show signs of a hemolytic anemia, a myeloproliferative disorder, a white cell count suggestive of infection, or eosinophilia seen with three potential causes of retiform purpura. One, medication reactions. Two, cholesterol emboli. Or three, eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, aka EGPA, which was formerly called schurg strauss syndrome. Again, eosinophilia in a patient with retiform purpura could hint towards a medication reaction as a cause, or less commonly, cholesterol emboli or EGPA. The remaining blood work will depend on your suspicion of the cause of retiform purpura, and there is much more that could be ordered. We will discuss our workup for purpuric rashes in general in the next episode, but for now I'll just mention that common screening labs for purpuric rashes include a CBC, CMP, coagulation profile, sed rate, CRP, and a UA. Drug tox screens should also be done for retiform purpura patients as well, since levamisole-tainted cocaine can be a cause and patients will lie about it. You dare drug test me? I'm an upstanding citizen! So should you do a biopsy? What sort of things could you find with a biopsy? Unless the patient is on their deathbed and has a do not resuscitate order, a biopsy is key because we have specific treatments for each of these life-threatening etiologies. The biopsy will help rule in or out of vasculitis, or it can confirm calciphylaxis by showing calcification and thrombosis of sub-Q arterioles. It may also show thrombi with minimal inflammation that is suggestive of a vasculopathy, or DIC. In these cases, you will often be working alongside a hematologist who will perform further coagulation studies such as protein C and S levels, factor V Leiden, etc. A biopsy could also clinch the diagnosis of cholesterol emboli, which would show the cleft-shaped cholesterol embolus within an artery or arteriole. So how exactly should the biopsy or biopsies be done? Oftentimes, two biopsies are performed, one at the center of a lesion and another at the edge of retiform purpura, especially if it is inflamed. You want to be sure your biopsy includes subcutaneous tissue so you can rule out calciphylaxis properly. This can be done with either an excisional biopsy or with telescoping biopsies, aka a double punch. To do a double punch biopsy, you use a larger initial punch biopsy, and then you get your double punch action by using a smaller punch within the larger hole you made in order to reach the fat. So because the differential is quite large for retiform purpura, I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty of treatment today, but I do want to mention some of the basics. So we'll finish today's episode by summing up our retiform purpura differential, including basic treatments, and we'll do it with the help of Dr. Dude. All right, let's play a game Dr. Grumpy Butt style, except way more chill. I'll say the etiology of retiform purpura from the advice mnemonic, and you give the mainstays of treatment. So A stands for... Antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Treatment includes anticoagulation, which will vary depending on where the patient is clotting and how severe the thromboses are. D should stand for dude, but it doesn't. So what about the D? D is for drugs, so think about heparin or Coumadin necrosis. For heparin necrosis, we stop the heparin and give an alternative anticoagulant such as Argatroban. 
For Coumadin necrosis, we obviously stop the Coumadin and also give alternative anticoagulation, along with vitamin K or fresh frozen plasma. The V is a big one, so... V stands for the many causes of vasculitis or vasculopathy. For the various forms of vasculitis, the treatment includes strong systemic anti-inflammatory medications such as prednisone, or steroid sparing agents such as methotrexate, azathioprine, cyclophosphamide, etc. For vasculopathies, that's when we typically call for help from the hematologist. I is also a big one and stands for infectious causes. Can you name six infections or infestations that can cause retiform purpura? Don't worry, you're not with Grumpy. Remember, infections or critters that can cause retiform purpura include meningococcemia caused by Neisseria meningitidis, ecthyma gangrenosum caused by Pseudomonas, necrotizing fasciitis from group A strep or clostridium. Then remember, retiform purpura can also be caused by angioinvasive fungi such as mucor or aspergillosis, disseminated strongyloidiasis, or brown recluse spider bites. Obviously, bacterial infections will need systemic antibiotics, and if you have a necrotizing fasciitis patient, they also need urgent surgical debridement. Angioinvasive fungi like aspergillosis are treated alongside our colleagues in infectious disease with antifungals such as voriconazole. Strongyloidiasis is treated with anthelmintics such as ivermectin or albendazole, and brown recluse spider bite treatment is mostly supportive with wound care, conservative debridement for necrotic tissue, leg elevation, and analgesics. C is for cookie, and that's good enough for me. I'm just kidding. What does C stand for? Calciphylaxis, or cocaine adulterated with levamisole. Calciphylaxis is often treated with IV sodium thiosulfate and correction of any abnormalities in serum calcium, phosphate, or parathyroid hormone levels. Wound care and treatment of secondary infections with antibiotics are also crucial for these patients. As for retiform purpura caused by cocaine tainted with levamisole, stop doing cocaine. Well, it must have been in the powdered sugar at the bake sale last Sunday. Are you going to report me? It's always the ones you least expect it from. So again, don't forget to know your patients. Anyways, last but not least, what does E stand for? E for emboli, such as cholesterol or fat emboli. Cholesterol emboli patients need supportive cardiovascular measures such as control of any concomitant hypertension, elevated blood sugars, dyslipidemia, and smoking cessation. They will also likely need surgical intervention for the embolic source, which was either the aorta or iliac arteries in two-thirds of patients in one study. As for fat emboli, these patients need repair of their long bone structure and may or may not need an IVC filter or corticosteroids. Bill Osler, that's who said the thing about knowing the patient or whatever. He also said, fear causes hesitation, and hesitation causes your worst fears to come true. Wait, no, that was someone else. Anyways, bottom line is, know your patient, know yourself, Study and respect the diseases, 
but don't let fear hold you back. And that's what I've got for you for Rediform Purpura. This was a relatively short introduction to a very complicated topic affecting very sick patients, but I hope you were able to pick up a couple of pearls and start to think about your approach to these patients. In the next episode, we'll bring all this vasculitis and vasculopathy content together at the patient's bedside and we'll discuss our H&P along with an approach to workup. All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls, but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.